Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you have been with us every step of the way um, during this camp meeting experience. Um, thank you that you've been ministering to our hearts. Uh, our hearts have been um, lifted up by, by praise, by music, by preaching, by fellowship, by so many different ways, Lord, and we are so thankful. And as we gather together this afternoon once again to take a closer look at the priorities that you would have us practice, Lord, in our lives, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today um, in a special way, Lord, and we thank you because you, this is a prayer that you love to answer. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Mm. So the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, outlined what must be the greatest and most important priorities in the life of a modern-day disciple in these last days. And so in our last presentation, we looked at priority number one. Priority number one. Come with me to 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter wrote, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So that was yesterday's last, last presentation. And I, I'm sharing with you a handout that I want you each to have. Does everyone have one of these? I think so. Okay. Here, if you can pass it back to the back corner there. Could you do me a favor and make sure everyone, who, if anyone else comes in. And uh, I wanted you to have something to take home and to compare notes with. And uh, if you'll, you'll take a look there. Um, I listed, and this was mostly based on our sharing, our discussion that we had at the conclusion of our seminar. And it says our best practice is to make prayer a personal priority. Number one, early prayer time, early morning prayer time, before the daily grind begins, allows us to make sure that time is set apart for prayer. Can you agree with that? Yeah. You know, because otherwise, otherwise, then, then you have to try to make it fit into your already busy schedule. So if you could do it early, before anything else gets started, uh, the better. Here, there's, there's something there. And, um, and you know what I've concluded, and I've been convicted of this myself, and that is this, that I'm hard-pressed to, to conclude that I just don't have time to pray. I really, I, I, I can't say that. You know why? Because I sleep at night. I sleep at night. No, I don't, even have, I don't even have half an hour to pray. Well, you know what? Why can't I not set my alarm half an hour earlier and sacrifice sleep for the sake of being able to have time to commune with God? Um, so I think, I think that at the end of the day, first thing in the morning is ideal, ideal. Um, unceasing prayer is not limited to time and posture, but it is an awareness of the presence of Christ wherever you go, with readiness to commune with him at any given moment. Can you agree with that? And, um, and, and that, that is so true. Because after all, when you sense that Jesus is with you, at, at, in the moment that you sense a need for prayer, your first go-to reaction will be pray, because Jesus is with me, you see. And, uh, and that's something that you can cultivate. You have to practice that mindset doesn't just automatically come to you. It's something practiced and put into our daily lives. Number three, the more specific you are, the more you'll discern God's specific answer. Amen? I mean, that's, that, that makes sense, right? Intentionally bring to God the heaviest burdens and the greatest needs mingled with thanksgiving and praise. You know, let's be transparent with God and let's come to Him you know, just with all that we have within us. 
Uh, number five, prayer is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, yes, yet trusting where, how, what, and when he'll answer. Can you agree with that? You know, it's, it's a trust relationship with God. Prayer, it's not about, you know, three wishes from, a, from, a, from the genie, you know. It's, it's saying, God, you are above all. You're greater than my greatest trial or, 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 or situation, and I will trust in you. Um, number six, prayer is the platform on which character development takes place, and the life of God flows into us. Remember that Ellen G. White quote where she says, it's doing prayer. It's that bond with God in which the life of God flows into us. And so prayer is crucial to our sanctification. Um, Number seven, prayer journaling gives structure to prayer, facilitates focused prayer, allows for deepest expression, and reminds us of past answers to prayer. Mm. And that's something that if you have not practiced, you might want to experiment and see how it works for you. Uh, Number eight, setting a predetermined amount of time to pray strengthens the discipline to pray. Told you about my half hour, you know, timer, you know. And if I prayed for 25 minutes, oh, I got to pray for at least five more. I mean, you have to you have to discipline yourself. And then, of course, after doing this for a while, um, you 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 get you get off the, the stopwatch. That's just to discipline yourself to get to the point where you can you can pray and focus on that. Um, it's a tool to train you and, and discipline you. Uh, number nine, having a prayer partner keeps us accountable. Okay, can you see how that would be a blessing? Yeah, being able to have somebody that you can pray with. And, um, and if, you, if you decide on a, a very specific time of the day or of the week to pray together, yes, it will keep you accountable. And that's, that could be a tremendous blessing. Um, if married, praying together with spouse will improve the quality of your marital relationship. Um, this is very true. Like, um, who was it yesterday? Um, I think it was uh, Pastor John Lomacain. He, he put up a, a triangle picture. Did you see that? God, you, and your spouse. It's a triangle relationship. But notice, the, the closer you come to God individually, the closer, what happens to the distance between the two of you? It gets closer as well, right? And, um, and so that's, that's what that is all about, spiritual intimacy, and uh, oh, and by the way, this this probably should go without saying, but I will say it, and that is that there's an intimacy that goes deeper than physical intimacy, and that's spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy. Um, and for that reason, um, it is not recommended or even encouraged uh, or advised that that you spend time in prayer with someone of the opposite gender, um, if especially if they're married, and. Um, because intimacy results from that kind of time together. And, um, and you don't want to find yourself, you know, in that kind of situation um, and then create, you know, greater challenges that you did not um, anticipate. So um, best practices to, to, to make prayer a corporate priority. And that was in the, that's in the context of the church. How can we make prayer a priority for our congregation, for our church? We actually didn't take time to actually discuss that, but I did want to share with you some ideas. Um, early morning united prayer session in the church. So it's a suggested time, Sabbath morning, prior to Sabbath school. So at Denver South, we have a united prayer session at 9 o'clock. Sabbath school is at 10. Worship service is at 11.15. And, um, and united prayer session does not lead a lot of introduction. Uh, people come in. We are already in prayer. They you know, they come in, uh, it's an open door, and, uh, and we just spend time in prayer. There are several acronyms that you can use to be able to, you know, you know facilitate the, the, the prayer. The, the, the prayer. Uh, we use the sanctuary prayer model. And so we have a picture of the sanctuary up on a board, and, um, and then verses that correspond with, e- with each, you know, uh, place. And, uh, and it's, been a, it's been a true blessing. 
and, uh, and those who have made it a regular practice are beginning to sense a bond with the others. And it's something very special. Um, united prayer. Uh, assigning prayer partners among church members and friends. Intentionally being able to, to, to assign prayer partners. Uh, another idea is designating an, an easily accessible prayer room for use during church and office hours. A prayer that is dedicated for intercessory prayer. And, um, and you can have prayer warriors or prayer ministry um, members within the church that are recognized for, for, being, for being ready for prayer. They can have a little tag that says prayer, prayer ministry or prayer warrior or something. And they understand and the church understands that at any given moment, anybody can, can have uh, prayer time in the, in the prayer room with a designated prayer ministry individual. These are practical things that, that may uh, be a blessing for your church. Uh, innovative prayer meeting during midweek. Uh, key word is innovative. Um, if you want to have them keep coming, you have to, you have to be innovative. You have to think ways of being able to engage people in relevant and fresh ways. Number five, participating in prayer initiatives such as 10 days of prayer. Um, that comes up every year in January. So again, these are, these are things that, um, that I trust you'll be able to consider putting into practice. And, um, and if, you keep, if you keep asking yourself or thinking about ways of, of making prayer a priority, believe me, God will inspire you. You're going to come up with ways that are not even listed here that you'll be able to practice. Oh, yes. I've seen that. Yes. Very good. Very good. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, having a prayer room in the church can follow that, that kind of concept, you know, of having a place designated for just to pray. Yeah, very good. All right. So let's go ahead and, and, and continue now as we examine our second priority uh, as revealed to us by the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, as we go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, now verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Priority number two. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. And then he quotes a proverb. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Wouldn't you agree with me that the world is changing just before our very eyes? Can you, can you, can you, can you agree with that? I mean, think about, you know, just 20, 20, 25 years ago, things have changed so drastically. You know, we sing America the Beautiful, but the reality is that America the Beautiful is becoming more and more outright ugly. <laughs> you know, from murders at a prayer meeting, remember some, some time ago, to, to murders at a holiday party. You know, innocent lives are breathing their last. And so we sing, there's pride in every American heart, you know, as we sing. But realistically, in these days, we're seeing more and more anger in every American heart. And... Wow, in the in dozens and dozens of cities across the, the country, uh, especially about six months ago or so, um, we were just seeing riots and riots and riots happening. And anything now, the, the tension is so high that anything could trigger overnight, could trigger riots across our country. And thousands are shouting, this needs to stop. This needs to stop. You know, you heard some of the, you know, you've seen it on the news. This needs to stop. But, you know, I wonder, I wonder, do we really know what needs to stop? You know, do we really know what needs to stop? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that as a society we even know ourselves what is it that needs to stop. You know, you'll ask people what needs to stop and they'll say, oh, we, we need to stop hating. We need to stop hating. Okay. Fine, it's, 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 yeah, there's, it's true, it's true, but the checklist of what needs to stop only keeps getting longer and longer. 
Um, some say disrespect needs to stop. Racism needs to stop. You know, rebellion against authority needs to stop. Evil for evil behavior needs to stop. And, and there's so much that needs to stop. And, and, and we, can, we, can, we can just, you know, write up a long list of things that need to stop. But maybe the greatest and the only need is not merely to stop, but to simply begin. But to simply begin. So what is it that our community needs from us? You know, as, as Adventist households in a residential area, what does your community need from you? What does our congregations need from us? What does God need from us? Peter states it plainly, that second prerogative, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. I want to take you to a well-known chapter. You could probably guess what chapter I'm thinking of. Yes. 1 Corinthians 13. Can you go to that? Because we're going to we're going to actually look at an insight that of something that you may or may not have seen before. It's another epistle, yep, to the Corinthians by another author, his name's Paul, inspired by the same Holy Spirit. In the 13th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul expounds on the greatest gift, but there's three, three words, just three short words inspired words that, that have stood the test of time. And it's found in verse 8. Verse 8. It's the first three words of the New King James Version. Do you see what they, those are? Why don't we say it together? Love never fails. Love never fails. Love never fails. Let me share you something about that, that three-word phrase, love never fails. The Greek word translated to fail is Pipto, pipto, P-I-P-T-O, pipto. That's the Greek word translated fail. And you know what it means? Pipto in the Greek means to fall from a higher place to a lower. Hmm. To fall from a higher place to a lower. Pipto. So the Bible says love never it never falls from a higher place to a lower. Hmm. Love never fails. What can we conclude from that? Well, love never brings down, for it never falls from a higher place to a lower. Love never fails. Hmm. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who wrote these words. If you would lift me up, you must be on higher ground. I like that. I'm going to say it one more time. If you would lift me up, if you would lift me up, you must be on higher ground. Hmm. That's because love tangibly demonstrated lifts another to higher ground. Love takes the high road. It takes the high road. That's why it covers a multitude of sins, you see. Paul would say love suffers long. It suffers long. Covers a multitude of sins. It suffers long. It takes the high road. It bypasses or overlooks the faults and responds with loving kindness only because it is the principle of life to love. To love. Another verse I want to share with you is Romans 12. Let's go over to Romans 12. Um, just the, the book just before Corinthians, right? Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Paul here expounds on how one can cover, well, how love can cover a multitude of sins. He writes, do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. A.K.A. or in other words, 
cover a multitude of sins. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what Peter's getting at. He's saying, don't, don't, don't retaliate. Don't give evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Let love cover a multitude of sins. We'll expound on this a little bit more a little later. But let me continue with the quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he always had such deep concepts to share. And this is what he had to say. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. He says darkness cannot drive out darkness. I mean, think about that. So true. Only light can do that. And then he brings out the analogy. In the same way, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Only love can do that. And Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, he said this, you must be the change you want to see in the world. You must be the change you want to see in the world. I, I like that. Being proactive, taking initiative to love because it's the principle of godliness, the principle of God's kingdom. And now my citizenship is not here on earth, but I am part of that kingdom. I must be the change I want to see in the world. But I must be quick to add, as much as I can agree with that concept, I must be quick to add that without Christ, we can do or change nothing. Can you agree with that? Without Christ, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. Why? Because Christ, Christ is love. As you read the Gospels, you'll notice the behavior of Jesus. And I'm going to take you to a passage that we looked at at our first presentation. I had mentioned to you that we would come back to it, and we're going to do that now. It's in Mark chapter 1. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. Remember the story when the disciple says, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Come on, let's go. You remember that story? Um, in Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 1, well, we're going to return to this story. As you read the Gospels, you'll note, um, you'll, you'll, you, you may notice, did you notice, that, that Jesus has an interest for people's physical health. I mean, isn't that evident in the Gospels? You know that, don't you? I mean, Jesus is constantly, it seems like he's constantly performing a, a miracle and healing someone from their physical illness, isn't he? And there's some passages that states that Jesus walked through entire villages and did not leave one person sick. So we can, we can see that time and time again in the Gospels. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus had an even greater interest in our spiritual health. He had a greater interest in our spiritual health. Because healing and feeding the multitudes and all these other compassionate actions... They were all efforts to reach the spiritual life as well as bring wellness to the physical life. And so let's go to Mark chapter 1 and take a look at the time when everybody was looking for Jesus, but Jesus had other priorities. And we're going to dissect the story a little bit more to discover what was going on in the mind of Christ. So let's go to Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 35 to 38. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. And it says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he what? He prayed, he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. Why? Because for this purpose, I have come forth. So Jesus' actions were driven by his priorities, not by impulse. You can ask any evangelist, it would be like the best case scenario to be able to be told that there's people looking for you. 
But not Jesus. Jesus gives a response that was unexpected. It's like, oh, okay, Jesus, it's your call. Whatever you want to do. And Jesus says, let's go. Let's move on. Let's move on. He was driven by his priorities. The question is, what was that priority that caused him to respond in this manner? Well, let's take a look at the context of what is taking place in this particular morning. Because in verse 35, it does say, now in the morning. What's the context? Well, look at what had happened just the evening before. Just the evening before. Look at verse 32. Going up to verse 32. It says, At evening, when the sun has set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city, verse 33, was gathered together at the door. And then notice verse 34. Then he, what? Healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So notice carefully the context. Mark records that many had gathered together. You see that in the text, right? In verse 33. Many had gathered together and he healed them. He healed them. And so we can only imagine, we can only imagine the excitement that ensues there in the crowd. People are excited. They can't believe what they're seeing. They thought they had terminal diseases. They thought they had lifelong diseases. And now they are cured. And it's only, it's only been a few hours since the most amazing miracles have taken place. This is from late evening to early morning. When the crowd in verse 37 is looking for Jesus. You notice that, right? It's only a few hours. We're talking from a late night to an early morning. And so the crowd is still excited. Hmm. The adrenaline rush from the evening before probably kept them up all night, which means that they didn't get a lot of sleep. I doubt many of them even slept that night, talking about their healing and going to their friends and saying, you're not going to believe what happened. They're, they're just, you know, completely excited. And so now they're looking for Jesus as soon as the sun comes up. But instead, Jesus decides... To give them a few days to rest. But more than that, to have time and opportunity to ponder what just happened. And to reflect on their greatest need for spiritual healing. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is this. He has just performed miracles that have literally changed their lives. But he also realizes that the, the excitement of, of the change or the miracle that has taken place has not given them ample opportunity to let it sink in and for them to recognize their greatest need and their deeper need for healing. That is spiritual. And so then notice what happens just after a few days. Come with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. That's only... A few days later, in Mark chapter 2, notice what happens there. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days. This is the same city, the same place. He comes back, and it was heard that he was in the house. Verse 2, and immediately many gathered together. Ah, same, same dynamic takes place. Many gathered together, just as they did before. So that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And then he says this. Mark records this. doesn't say, and he healed them. It says something different now. And it says, and he what? Preached. And he preached the word to them. Huh. Interesting. Mark records that many gathered together once again, but this time he preached the word to them. And note what happens in verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Do you see what he's doing? 
he met their physical needs. After meeting their physical needs, he goes away for a few days to let that experience just sink in. What just happened to me? I've been healed. I, I don't have this illness. I don't have this disease anymore. And, it, and, it, and if he can heal, if he can heal me from, from this leprosy, if he can heal me from, from this paralysis, if he can heal me, could it, could, might it be that maybe, maybe he can heal my heart? Maybe he can heal my pain. Maybe he can heal me from my hurt, from my spiritual illness. And what happens is this. He comes back. He returns, gives a sermon. And then it's almost as, his, as if he offers an advanced session. Because you notice in verse 13, he went out from Capernaum out to the sea and continued teaching. It's almost that Jesus is intentionally wanting to, 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 to filter the crowd. He's wanting to, to retain the interest of those that are seeking him the most deeply and the most sincerely. Those who are being convicted of needing something even greater, something deeper. So Jesus, so Jesus offers an advanced session to those who truly sense their holistic need of him. And it doesn't say, it doesn't say here in the passage what happened after the sea or what he actually spoke to them, but this is my guess. I'm guessing he made a specific appeal, some sort of appeal to, 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 to get a response from the multitude by the sea. And those who responded to him, they joined him for lunch. Because notice verse 15 now. Mark 2.15, now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Who were these people? They were the people that had gathered with him by the sea. And who were those? Those were the people that heard him preach in Capernaum. And who were they? There were people who had responded because they longed for something much deeper than the physical healing they had experienced a few days before that. And so Jesus is progressively, intentionally, just trying to get to the heart of people. Huh, his priority? Maybe so, maybe so. And as he continues to minister to their needs, notice what happens next, verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks and with tax collectors and sinners? You know why it is that he does that? Because he's covering a multitude of sins. His love is covering a multitude of sins. Hmm. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are sinners. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So did you notice with every healing, Jesus knew that spiritual health is more important than physical health. That was, that was his, his, his longing to bring healing to the masses. That's his priority. And what drove him to have compassion on the unlovable was the power of love. And he demonstrated a, a depth of love for us that even as it is, must have astonished the angels of heaven. You know, Jesus knew for what purpose he came forth. He knew. And that was to love. Jesus knew why he was living. To love fervently. To love fervently. He was smooth with compassion. The Bible often makes mention of that. He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. In one passage it says that he was moved with compassion and saw the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd. And the same multitude that Jesus had compassion towards and, and loved fervently as sheep without a shepherd are the same multitudes that the Pharisees set their eyes on and saw nothing but sinners saw nothing but sinners, but Jesus loved them because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. 
See, that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, it's not, it's not, it's not saying we should justify sin and, and, and just, you know, don't call sin by its right name. No, that's not the point. The point is simply that we act, we act based on the principle of love. We demonstrate love, we show love, we give love just because, and it's not based on Lifestyle practices, it's not based on one's present behavior or condition. You don't use that to determine whether or not they deserve any kind of love. The Bible speaks of love as a principle that is exercised by Christ's disciples, and it covers a multitude of sins. And we get so caught up with the rat race of daily living that we lose our perspective. I mean, don't we? Let's be honest. We lose the perspective. We are so caught up with, you know, with, with life. We get so caught up doing the work of the Lord that we don't have time for the, word, the Lord of the work. We get so caught up in defending our beliefs and the doctrines, like the Seventh-day Sabbath and others, that we don't reflect the character of the Lord of the Sabbath. Hmm. Where in your Bible does it say that the world will know that you are his disciples? Do you know where that passage is found? It's in John chapter 13, verse 35. Can I take you there? Let's go to Luke, John, um, John chapter 13, verse 35. John chapter 13, verse 35. This is a verse that is, is so simple that it's the very reason why we were not mindful of it. We, we forget what the principle is. The Bible says, by this we shall know that you are my disciples. If you have, we know this verse, if you have what? Love for who? For one another. Doesn't say that you'll know that you're my disciples by how well you can explain the 2300 days or or by how many trinity debates you win the bible says by this you shall know that you are mine that you are my followers if you have love for one another maybe it's time to well reprioritize reprioritize and i want us to understand this that if we want to have power for living in a hate-filled world if we want to genuinely make an impact for eternity, we need to come to our senses and get to know and love Jesus and in turn know and love people as Jesus did. This is what revolutionizes the people that we are associated with, that we're building relationships with, that we long to win for the kingdom. Nothing more, nothing less it's loving people. If you want to love people as Jesus loved people, I'd like to offer you a genuine biblical test. And this is a test of sorts that, that, that will cause food for thought for you to ask yourself and for you to put yourself in, in that place. And it's called the Jericho Road Test. The Jericho Road Test. And it's going to help you discover where you stand with Jesus and in this principle of loving one another. You know the story, many of you do. Jesus told the story of a man that was robbed along the Jericho Road. Now, if you only read the biblical account, there's some things that you don't know about the Jericho Road that, that you, would, you would miss an important perspective here. Uh, in the story, Jesus tells of a man who was traveling down to Jerusalem, traveling down to Jerusalem, or rather from Jerusalem to Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and I had the privilege of going to Jerusalem uh, or to Israel last, last June. In fact, my wife was here and, and, uh, and I was in Israel at the time, uh, last camp meeting. And, uh, and we had the chance to go to Jericho. We went to the city of Jericho and and there we actually, they, the, the guy pointed out the ruins where 
uh, it is believed that the city of Jericho once stood. Um, and it's very fascinating. And what's even more fascinating is this, that when you go to Jericho, um, you, you can see the incredible change of elevation. Come with me to uh, Luke chapter 10, and I'll show you what I mean. Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 30. Look at Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 30. And we'll read that, that first part in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Uh, and it says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's stop there. Notice, he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Literally true. Jerusalem is located 2,600 feet above sea level. 2,600 feet above sea level. And Jericho is located about 700 feet below sea level. Quite a significant change. So when Jesus says he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's, it's literally very true. And what's interesting is that the Jericho Road is pretty much the same as it was in the time of Christ. Um, There is is paved streets where vehicles travel from place to place, but there is a distinct road that is still recognized today as the most common popular uh, pedestrian path that they would have taken centuries ago from Jerusalem down to Jericho. That road is still distinguishable. You could could trace it. You could see it. And it's very interesting. And what's even more interesting was our tour guide told me that the place, the place from Jerusalem down to Jericho, is still known as a place where armed robbery takes place. (laughs) Isn't that that kind of interesting? Um, It's still still known for that. Still known for that. And, and down this winding, narrow road, a man was attacked by robbers. You know the story. Look at the rest of verse 30. Uh, it says, And, um, and they, he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Then Jesus continues there in verse 31 and 32. Now by chance, a certain priest came down from that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Let's pause there for a moment. Notice something very interesting. The two individuals are identified as a priest and a Levite. And in their defense, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to defend them for a little bit. Because in their defense, please consider the possibility that they were returning from an appointed term of service in the temple. After all, the priest functioned in the temple, so did the Levite. And if that was the case, which was very likely, and if this man along the road was dead, which he appeared to be, if they would have touched him, or even come even near him, they would have been ceremoniously unclean. If they had touched him. Hmm, interesting. So for all intents and purposes, they were taking their spiritual standing with God very seriously. They were interested in their spiritual standing with God. And they knew, they reasoned, they surmised that if they got anywhere near this, what appeared to be a dead body, they would have immediately been ritually unclean or defiled. They would have been defiled. Hmm. Kind of interesting perspective. And furthermore, if this person was a Samaritan, like the person who was beat up and, and nearly dead, or even possibly a Gentile, either one, it would have even been a greater defilement. And they weren't going to risk even that chance. And so they stayed away from him. Let me share with you what Ellen G. White, how she comments in, uh, on this story in her classic book, Desire of Ages. She says this, The fact that the Samaritan was traveling in what was to him a foreign district made his deed of mercy even more noteworthy. In this district, it would, it would be likely that the unfortunate 
wayfarer was a Jew, a member of the race that cherished the most bitter enmity against the Samaritans. So here's a man who sees another and he, and he recognizes, he's very much aware that the person that is in great need of help is one who harbored bitter anger towards him as a Samaritan. Hmm. The Samaritan knew well that if he had been the wounded, wounded victim, get this, if he had been the wounded victim laying aside by the road, he could have expected no mercy from any orig, uh, ordinary Jew. So he realized that the roles were swapped. It is highly unlikely that he would have been helped by anyone else, less, most like, um, less likely a Jew. However, the Samaritan, and this next phrase is so, so profound. Listen to this. However, the Samaritan, at considerable risk to himself from the attacks of robbers, determined to help the poor victim at considerable risk to himself. You see, love, love acts regardless of the possible consequences that may come in demonstrating that love. He could have reasoned that I better make my way quickly through this neighborhood as fast as I can because I might get robbed myself. It seemed like that was not even a thought. At considerable risk to himself, he was determined to help the poor victim. She writes on, In a very real way, the mercy exhibited by the Samaritan reflects the spirit that moved the Son of God to come to earth to rescue humanity. God was not obligated to rescue fallen men. He might have passed sinners by, as the priest and Levite passed the luckless travel on the road to Jericho. But the Lord was willing to be treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. Hmm. So maybe, maybe you haven't been down the Jericho Road near Jerusalem. But I wonder, how many of us have gone down the Jericho Road in your city, in your town? For we all have a Jericho Road that we travel on. Perhaps you've passed by a car along the road, as one pastor recalls. I'm going to share with you his, his story. Um, he was driving with his wife, and they were on their way to a service. They were on time, but any kind of detour would have gotten them late. So they, they traveled on, and there were two ladies on the side of the road in their car. The trunk was lifted and and it was obvious that they had a flat tire. But by the time the pastor's wife convinced her husband that it was worth stopping for, it was too late. They had already passed the, the vehicle and they, they couldn't have had, they put it, it was too late to go in reverse. They went beyond that. And so it would require taking the next exit, then having to make a complete turnaround back to that spot, which would have been an additional 15 minutes or so. And so it would have put them very late. Should they do it? Should they do it? Well, they decided to take the journey back. Let's do it. Let's do it. Because we can. And so the ladies were very grateful for the help. And their jack was missing from the car. That's why they, they were in a dilemma. And as the pastor was tightening the lug nuts, his wife asked the ladies, you know, starting chat, you know, conversation, uh, if they were related, are you related? And they looked at each other and then asked one another, should we tell her, should we tell her, should we tell them? And then they said, yeah, we're lesbian. And, and the pastor's wife was somewhat caught off guard. They continued to help. They continued to perform that act of kindness, to show that love. And as they went on the road, once again, they, they asked themselves, did we do the right thing by helping? You know, when we think of the Jericho Road test, we must ask ourselves, 
Are these human beings in need as much as was a certain man on the road to Jericho? Were personal lifestyles at the time an issue? Was the Samaritan uh, mindful or was he questioning uh, the individual's life or backstory or background or experience, his beliefs or where he came from or where he was going? Did he examine all these things before he determined what he should do? Peter said, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Come with me to James chapter 2. Let's go to another passage. Now this passage um, point, speaks on the application that one can make from the story that Jesus told about the Samaritan. Look at James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, and you'll, you'll see what I mean by this. John, James 2, verses 14 to 17. James writes, For what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? Paul said the greatest of these is love, and faith was included in the list. And Peter would say that, or Paul would say that love is even greater than faith. So one could paraphrase and say, if someone says he has love, but does not have works, can love save him? If a brother or sister is naked, now we, we're starting to get even more practical here. If a brother and sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. A clanning symbol. What, what profit is there? It is dead. Have fervent love for one another. The Message Bible, which is a paraphrase, uh, writes, and I like the way uh, this is written, the Message Bible writes, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? You know, furthermore, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said these words, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does what? The will of my Father who, which is in heaven. And what is his will? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will you know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And instead of loving others because we need to be loved by them, we love others because we are loved by God. And we feel loving towards them. Regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, Peter says, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And you know what? This deep love for Christ is more easily caught than taught. You know, we can talk about loving one another. It could be taught. It could be a concept taught. But at the end of the day, you can attend all the classes, all the seminars, all hear all the sermons on loving one another. But it's not going to make a difference. Love in one another is a conscious choice of the will. It's an exercise of the will in response to how much God loves us. And this effect that a Christian has on others, because it's a ripple effect, it's illustrated by a story of a man who was hurrying through an airport terminal and he was late for his flight. He was running down that terminal as fast as he could. And as, as he was running in his haste, he, he overlooked a little girl that was standing right in front of him. And he just knocked her down. Just, he, she just fell over like two feet, just flat on the, 
on her back. But more than that, she had been carrying a little box with her puzzle. And when it landed on the ground, that box just flew open and all the puzzle pieces were all over the terminal floor. And, and when, he, when he ran into her, he stopped and instead of going on, which, well, he could have, he decided to stop, kneel down, and help the little girl pick up all the little pieces. And finally, the entire puzzle was put inside that box. And when that happened, the little girl looked up to him and said, Mister, you, you, you must have missed your plane. The man smiled and said, So I have. And then the little girl asked in all sincerity, Mister, are you Jesus? <laughs> are you Jesus? You see, for when we act in love, regardless of what consequences it might have, regardless of the outcome for us, when we act in love, we show the world the character of Jesus. And you know, one can make a list of multiple priorities for the Christian. One can seek to have a revival of true godliness. By the end of the day, Christ has priorities for us. He's outlined them very clearly. Be serious and watchful in your prayers and love one another fervently. For when these things are put into practice, the outcome is tenfold because we are actually revealing and demonstrating the character of Christ. And that's what leads to life change. It's not what people are taught, but what people see in our lives as we interact with them. And by God's grace, by God's grace, you and I can reprioritize and think on these things. And so as, as, we, as we wrap this up and think about this second priority, that is such a fundamental block of the Christian faith. Let me ask you a question. How, how can we, how can we make our faith sweat? You know, going back to what James said, faith without works is dead. How, how can we, how can we, what principle or what, what mindset can we apply into our lives that will lead us to be able to exercise love at times when we would not have thought to or in circumstances where it's not practical, it's not convenient, but love will be the act that will demonstrate the greatest revelation of God's character. How can we make faith sweat? Um, does anyone have a, a story to tell or an experience you had where it taught you something about demonstrating the love that only comes from God? Come with me to Romans, because that, that brought a verse to mind. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Because some, some might think, I just don't have it... I just don't have it in me. I don't have it in me to, 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 to even imagine myself being able to, to show that kind of love to someone that at times has hurt me so deeply. I don't have it in me. But notice what Romans 5, 5 tells us. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in what? In our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This love, this love that God calls us to, to show to one another. Isn't it something that when God commands us to do something, He always, He always provides the means to be able to fulfill and obey that which He commands. Can you say amen to that? 
you know, God says, love one another, love one another. But we say, but God, I, I don't. And God says, but I do. I want to fill you with my love through the spirit that you may have it to show to others. You know, in the Greek, there's various, many different words that can be translated love, you know, right? Eros and phileo and agape, agape. What's distinct about agape? Distinct from all the other types of expressions of love. What, what is it about agape that, that is different? It's unconditional. It's unconditional. It's self-sacrificing. Huh? Unselfish. These are all right answers. There's one, 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 one specific characteristic of agape love that I'm thinking of. Huh? What's that? Endless. Endless. Okay, endless. These are all right. Agape is also an act of the will. It's an act of the will. It's not, it's not, it's not driven or it's not fueled by, by emotion. It's not determined by circumstances. It's not based on whether we feel like it or not. Uh, and it's not based on how, how we're being, you know, what are we gaining from this? What will be my gain if I do this? If, if I act A, what will be B? What will be the outcome or result for me? What's the benefit, what's, what's the benefit for me? Mm. Agape doesn't ask any of those questions. Agape is an act of the will. I choose to love. I choose to love. When the Bible says love one another, it's the word is agape. Love one another. Choose to love. And when Jesus, when Jesus calls us to love, and we choose to will to love and show that to others, I'll tell you what, that right there will prove to be more effective than entire sets of Bible studies that is given with somebody and they just don't seem to get it, don't seem to respond, you know, they're not responding to it. You, you, you've been investing so many hours in trying to get them to, to make a choice, but they don't. You begin to love them and do tangible acts of kindness and love and it will melt their hearts. They will be in awe of what they see and how they're treated especially when they realize that they don't deserve it, when it's something that's not based on who they are, but what they can be. Because as we choose to love people, we're treating them as Christ treats us. Because think about the, num the countless times that God has forgiven you and, and knows of your shortcomings. He knows of your failures, yet God's love and compassion and grace is sufficient to us. So as we, as we examine the second priority, as we seek to be modern-day disciples and these last days are preparing the people for a soon return, how many of you, by the power of God's grace and by the promise that He has given to us in Romans 5.5, 5, want to open your hearts, want to open your lives for God to pour His love into you, so much so that it will overflow and it will be seen by all those around you. By God's grace, are you willing for Him to do that for you? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we know, we know that time is short. So does the devil. And I know he's out to kill love. And he's going to do whatever it takes. He knows what buttons to push. He knows what easily offends us. But Lord, you know us more than, you know our, than we know ourselves. And you created us. And you tell us in your word that we can be able to come to a place where we are vessels filled with your love to a world that is hurting, a world that is sinful. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your grace, 
cause us to make changes in our lives. Above all, Lord, may we be willing to lay open our hearts before you and ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us with the love of God and that we would be sensitive and intentional in willing and choosing to love everyone around us in such a way that they will see Jesus in us. Thank you for answering our prayer. Bless us, Lord, as we go about the rest of this day. Thank you for being near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.